Global Dispatches. This is your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. My guest today, Albina du Bois-Souvray, is a French countess who sold her family heirlooms to start the anti-poverty NGO FXB International. Albina was born into one of the wealthiest families in the world and had a very successful career as a film producer. In 1986, her son Francois Xavier, who was a rescue pilot, died in a helicopter accident in Mali. And that was the moment where she decided to dedicate her life and her fortune to fighting extreme poverty and the AIDS epidemic, which at the time was just taking off. We start with a conversation about how she came to adopt a particular methodology that FXB employs in the villages where it's involved. And this model was heavily influenced by the work of the late Jonathan Mann, who was a World Health Organization official who very early in the AIDS epidemic was among the first people to articulate the links between human rights and human health. On May 4th, in partnership with Harvard University, FXB is making open source its model and methodologies. So if you want to learn more about this particular and unique holistic approach to fighting extreme poverty, I encourage you to check it out. For now, though, sit back and enjoy this really amazing, very wild, somewhat tragic, and all-in-all inspiring conversation with Albina Dubois-Souvray. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I was thinking, if we invest at FXD International, if we invest money from the foundation into three or four or five families, giving access to everything by investing in these families, like many governments giving subsidies year after year, we will only take care of a few of them. So we won't be able to move on to others, A. B, I'm not going to be using microcredit for anything because it's wonderful microcredit. I love it. I mean, Mohammed Yunus also has been a big teacher way back that women were people you could count on. Mm-hmm. But microcredit is not for the extreme poor. There are two levels of poverty, the ones who are just underneath and the ones who were in such misery also because of the AIDS epidemic. And I thought, you know, we're not going to become a mini-government giving subsidy, so what can we do? And it's from the field that I got the answer, really, because as I have spoken so much about the necessity of schooling for the kids, giving nutrition that was, pro- that was good for them, not having them star- half-starving, getting access to everything linked together, one woman of the community got up, I think she was called Pauline, and she got up and she had understood the importance of linkages, so she said to me, And she gave me the solution without knowing it. She said, well, if that FXB gives me a cow, I can put milk on the table and the children will be better fed. 
And then I can sell the surplus in the market. And with that money, I can pay the school fees. I can pay the materials for the schooling and the uniforms. I thought, brilliant, that's what we need. So Jonathan's paradigm of health and human rights we need, in order to make it a development one, to add an extra link, which will be a little business. And again, not giving it, as it was the trend by microcredit, no way that I've given three quarters of what I owned to have the tools to make programs for poor people. I was never going to ask these mm-hmm. people to give it back to us. So we're going to invest into that little business as we're investing in all the rest. And that's, and that's um, how it was born, because we invest the first year. The second year with their savings, they come on and they participate in their budget. The third year, it's 50-50. The fourth year, they're on their own. And it works. 80% so, success. So at least it, in the USA, you know, the FXB model is not as well known as, for example, like the Millennium Villages Project, which is championed, you know, by <laughs> no, Jeff yeah, Sachs Jeff and, and Sachs, others. I know. So how – so what what – Different approach it's, do you take than the Millennium Villages? Well, I mean, first of all, the approach that I take... You, I do you, you probably get that question a lot, I bet, from American <sighs> interviewers, I would imagine. Not so often. <laughs> not all of them know it so well. But um, the thing is, look, Jeff Sachs knew, knows about our projects. We, we worked with his assistant, Sarah Sievers, for a long time. We went and visited. She even worked with me. She was my assistant for a while when, he, when she left and went to Columbia University. And he is, it's wonderful that he was doing this approach. I mean, I was encouraging. I think it was wonderful. But he just never asked how to do it. And the secret of it is you don't multiply our figures by 10. You don't make 5,000 people in a program. We have 500. And there's a reason for that. Because if you keep it small, there's a proximity between the staff and the participants, as I like to call them. You have those people, the people who take care of the social worker, the nurse, the logistician, are all local people. There's nobody from the outside. There's no consultant coming in, jumping in and giving more orders than advice. I mean, it's a totally different way, a different different culture of doing things. Plus, the numbers are critical. You don't go from a little group of 500 people to 5,000. We've kept it on purpose small. It all is in the details. And that's what I'm trying to do with the toolkit and the planning guide, is to explain really the very simple day-to-day details that one has to be attentive to in order to make it successful. And also what challenges you can meet and what are the solutions you can bring. Well, isn't there this pressure to like, you know, when there is a successful program to scale up? Mark, you know, UNICEF came and I think it was 2003 or something, two or three or four. And they said, we don't know how to get people, you know, on their two feet, be able to raise their kids, so many AIDS orphans in Africa. We don't know what to do. You guys seem to be getting it right. Can we come and visit? And I said, sure. Are they happy that they came to visit? First thing I said to them, I can't give you a blueprint because it's not a blueprint. It's an approach. It's a way of dealing with things. It's a, it's a culture. It's like you're not taking care of people in a bureaucratic way. You really have a family relationship with them. From me, at the top, the CEO comes and visits. I don't live there, but with the, through the people who are the staff who live there. And it's a whole culture that permeates the whole program of total dedication of, as I said, an attention to details, of keeping things on track, of being very, very attentive to, you know, for instance, the hygiene. It's something very crucial that you have to start at the beginning because the hygiene is the building block for the health. The health And hygiene is crucial and should be started first thing when the FXB village starts when the 80 families have been chosen. 
So I said to UNICEF, we, I can't give you a blueprint. I can take you around. I can explain our work. I can tell you what we're doing, how we're doing it. I can show you challenges and try to show you the solutions we've found with the community because it's completely embedded in the community. I've listened, listened, listened to the people in the community a lot before advising things. And they went back and they said, it's wonderful. It's a great program. In fact, they have recognized the FXB Village model and UNAIDS also as a best practice. But they said, we don't know how to get it up to scale. Because getting it up to scale, people are always thinking, like the Millennium Villages, you will take this and you're going to multiply to bring it to scale. Well, no. I think the only way to bring it to scale is to keep it the way it is, small, and bring it to scale that way. 80 families by 80 families. And it's not... I find that expensive because it's $123 to $230 per year, per person, over three years. And I say from $125 to $230, depending on which economic context you're in. And that's over three years. And you're bringing these people out of their poverty and you're enabling them to raise a generation otherwise discarded and lost and going into all the ills where a lot of money spent downhill to either, you know, repair them or stop them, like we're seeing now, or and then not as money spent uphill invested into doing prevention. That's why I think it was so important to make this toolkit available in, on open space and share in a shared knowledge spirit so that people now can really understand and see that it's 26 years of proven existence of success and that they can maybe change the way they approach things and understand that if you do it 80 families by 80 families, which is doable, then it can be successful. And we can go to FXB Villages to, to find the, the, the blueprint when it's available. Your, your background seems exceedingly unique from, you know, just by any measure, but particularly for people involved and interested in the international development space. So I, I take it you were born into just a very wealthy family in, in France. Where, uh, what was your, who were your parents and where did that, your sort of family wealth come from? Well, I'm, I'm come from a very, very mixed background and it was not an easy thing to have as a kid, but I think it's a great asset now and it would be a great asset for my work. Because I was born to a father who was a French aristocrat, uh, long, you know, old-time families in France with everything that goes with it, and to a mother who came from a very recently affluent Latin American family. But her background was her grandmother was a very miserable woman living in a little village that I think still doesn't have any uh, electricity that's well put. When I went to visit, you had lines of electric lines hanging on the road and dirt roads. And her father made a very big fortune. Her father was Simon Petino. He made a fortune in the mining in Bolivia. And he was, I don't think he was illiterate, but he never studied anything. And he was a self-made man in very difficult situations coming from great poverty. So that has helped me because I have a very unusual background. I'm partly Quechua from the Quechuas of the high mountains in Bolivia, and I'm partly French aristocrat, which enables me to have, as I always say, I have one foot in the mud and one foot in the silk. So the mud one helps me to understand, I think, the communities I'm working with because I feel a great empathy. And you know, sometimes I go around. African, Latin American, sometimes even India, because they look alike. And um, 
I see my own grandmother there in those faces and the way they're behaving and the way they're dealing with things. And so I go there and I can make my programs and I think I can understand maybe and have an empathy with people more than if I was just a French aristocrat. But the other part helps me to go up to the UN and say to Secretary General, hey, Coffee, you've got to talk about AIDS orphans because nobody's talking about them and they need your help and they need the money of the world to be make, making programs like the ones I'm making so they can be brought up or to go into governments and to try to, you know, I went a lot to also to the Congress and places and trying to say you, America's got to ratify the Convention on the Rights of the Child because until America does it, it's the leader, nobody else is really going to feel obligated to implement it. Well, hopefully you so haven't given up background. that. You, you haven't given up that that challenge. We, no, we're, we're I haven't. Yet, Every but... time there's a new director of the FXB Center, I said your mandate is to get this to convention get, yeah. ratified. It'll happen if it happens in my daughter's lifetime. I will be pleased. Um, okay, good. <laughs> so, so um, where did you go to? Like, where did you go to school? Where did you go to high school? Did you grow no, up in France? I had mostly? also I had a completely hectic background. I was brought up in New York. So New uh, York is my Proustian Madeleine for me. I mean, Central okay. Park, uh, all these big avenues across each other, very, <coughs> very sort of sleek way. Uh, it's not Paris with its cobbled little roads that sort of that go around in the circles. Um, New York. I was brought up in New York for the first six and a half years of my life, and I went one year to Argentina. We were like a tribe, my mother's family, you see. So we were here, and then we moved to Argentina because my, my grandfather was aging and wanted to die in, in his country, which he never got to, died in Argentina. And then my father woke up one morning thinking, oh, my God, this girl's going to be seven. She doesn't speak a word of French. She doesn't know her French relatives. She's completely North American, New Yorker, and South American. <laughs> and she, she must get to have her other part of her culture integrated. So he sent me off to Europe. And there, uh, so that's a long story. I mean, I'm not going to tell you my life story, but a lot of things happened to me which made me have to, I didn't, I missed school because I had a huge accident, so I stayed in the hospital for a long time. What life. happened? Fell down an elevator shaft. Oh. Because I'm, I'm a very inquisitive person, so I wanted to find a place that I'd been told of in that new house that never had a house. We'd be living in the hotels until I was age nine. So I was an inquisitive roaming around and I mistook one door for another and, and wanted to be brave because it was dark and black. So I got to go forward and boom, I went down like uh, how, Alice in the hole, the rabbit's hole. <laughs> how old were I you? Was I was nine, nine years old. And you, you missed a, a year of school that way? So I missed school. I didn't go to school. And then I was shipped off to to North Africa. I spent four years, except the summer, of course, because it was too hot. But I spent four years in North Africa and Morocco and completely on the loose because my parents were, they lived half time in America and half time in Europe. My father was dealing with the business of the, my mother's family and they didn't have time to come and settle down where a child had to be. So I was sent there and I was very happy there. But I learned a lot of things that helped me later in my film producer life because I was living in the souk. Do you know Marrakesh at all? The I've, I've never been there, but okay, um, well, I, I like you, you can paint a picture, though. You know, you know, the souk's a sort of big market. Sure. Covered market. I like little yeah. streets and you barter there constantly. So I learned how to barter. And I must say that was the only European child in those days running around. Like who is and raising he, you? I mean, who, who was like responsible for like... A 
lovely, lovely woman who was the daughter of my grandmother, my Quechua grandmother's interpreter, and who was a piano player, a concert piano player, and who my mother trusted completely. And she was wonderful because she was my sort of keeper, but she had not a clue of what I was doing. And she couldn't follow up with me. So she was teaching me things. I had a correspondence course that I was supposed to do. I never did half of it. I was quite ignorant when I was a kid. But I learned a lot of other things that were very important for me in life. I learned how to barter. So afterwards in the film industry, I knew very well how to make my contracts. Um, so uh, did you end up going to, to university? Uh, like, so what like, I did then after that, again, my father woke up, you know, finished, Morocco was finished, uh, my health was okay, I came back to Europe, and he said, now you've got to go to boarding school, you've forgotten all your English, so you've got to go to an English boarding school. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so there I went for two years to an English boarding school, and then I went to a French boarding school, and I'm very proud to say that I passed all my exams in England, uh, very well, you know, the sort of final, the O levels. And I passed my baccalaureate in France, where there were two at the time. I passed one, the first one, with flying colors, with a mention, mention, you know, good, which is very easy to get today, but wasn't at all in those days. <laughs> but I worked myself, I really worked like a dog, because I would read at night with a little lamp under the sheets to catch up all the things that I didn't know and hadn't learned. Several years of classes. And then, then I got, then I dropped out because my father didn't want me to go to university, didn't want me to come back on a university in, um, in America, so I'm not going to pass my second baccalaureate. So you see, I've had a very hectic life and a very hectic education. Was there ever any expectation that you would join the family business? No, not the business. You know, my family, girls didn't join the business like they didn't go to university. They were made to marry very young, if you please, and get rid of being a potential trouble. So that's what, finally, when I said, I'm not going to pass my second baccalaureate, it's pointless. I want to go to university. I want to study. I want to learn things. So I got married. And then when I was married, and when I had Francois, when I put Francois to kindergarten, I really, went to school, I went back to school and again I passed my second baccalaureate with flying, flying colors and then I started university but then my my university career was stopped by May 68 in which I was extremely active Were you in Paris Paris during the May 68 events? Yes, because I was at the Sorbonne You were at the Sorbonne then? Were you barricading the streets? I'd been there the the year before and I was there that year and Nothing, you know, everything was, had become a mess, and we're thinking, oh, studies, you know, who cares? You know? Well, I, was I it, never I mean, finished my degree in philosophy and psychology. I mean, but I feel that I have a degree in life. <laughs> uh, I mean, you, you most certainly do. I mean, in those like May 68 riots, I mean, here you are, you know, the, the, the daughter of, of an aristocrat, and, and also, you know, very, you know, coming from like a very wealthy family. These are essentially like socialist agitators that you're participating in. Did you ever sort of feel like um, out of place or, or have like a moment of, of self-reflection? Like, what am I doing here and anything like that? What am I doing here? What am I doing in the family I'm living in? Yes. What am I mm-hmm. doing in the context I am? Yes. Not what am I doing with my life? No. Mm-hmm. I'm engaged. I get engaged in all the things and all the trends of the 60s, as you've just mentioned, all mm-hmm. the leftist trends, the feminist trends, the ecological trends, everything, until I meet doctors without borders. And I felt that's real politics, because that's not just theory, that's not just manifesting, that's really doing something to change actively the context of people. You know, 
all my life, before Francois's death, I had my career. I was a film producer. But always what I wanted to do with my time was somehow to change something for the better in the world that I was in because I felt it was a very dysfunctional world and I felt it was absolutely purposeless to be in a rich family and just live the life that I was offered, that it had no sense. I would die in a huge depression <laughs> getting to the end of it. I wanted to use my time. I had no resources there, but I wanted to use my time, my energy, my creativity to make something that even in a small, small way would make a difference, to be part of making a difference on the planet for the people living at the same time I was living on it. So how, how did you get involved in, in the film industry then? So then the film industry, I got involved because in May 68, when everything went haywire, uh, I went down, I borrowed the car of a friend and put huge, a tiny little Bianchi, a tiny car, it was mad to go on the roads with that. And I filled it with jerry cans of, um, of petrol, of yeah, fuel. So I went down, I went all over France, and I did, because I had been a fledgling journalist, having by chance in 67 done a scoop on Che Guevara's death. That's another story. So then I wait, said, you I'm broke, make... wait, sorry, sorry. Did you break the news of Che Guevara's death? Yes. No, I didn't break the news. I broke the news of two things. One, how he, how he died, according to the captain, Zenteno, who had captured him, who then became general. And secondly, by having the, bu the last bullet in his gun, which I still have in my possession. And having the photographs of the reel that he was carrying on him, he was carrying, then I discovered he was carrying 11 reels on him. They were photographing themselves in the jungle of Guerrieros. But this captain kept one for himself. The others went to La Paz to the headquarters of the government to be developed. So this, this captain had kept one for himself and he developed it. And I, I must say, I stole, I pinched those photographs. I like made copies you knew of them it was going to be obviously like a historic artifact and, and you still have those? Of course I still have them and I'm planning when I have time one day to go to Cuba and to give them to Che Guevara's son who I met, Camilo. And they have now an institute. So one day I'll do that or something like that but that doesn't really belong to me. But, and the who were you working for when you, yeah. broke, when you broke those stories? I, in France. For, for okay. the First the... Um, the uh, Express, and I went on the television. There was a big program on television. I went on several European televisions, and then I wrote an article in the Nouvelle Observateur. Once the captain, was, who became general, had been killed, I felt I could talk about my source, which I'd never talked about, and explain how I'd had that story and what I probably think was true and what I probably think he just made up to make himself look good, probably because he wanted to go into politics and replace President Barrientos, so basically that. So anyhow, in May 68, I take this little car, fill it with petrol, go around France, make a big, big, big inquiry on all the social layers of France. I mean, I went to see... Of course, the workers in the factories, the students in the universities, but I also went to see the farmers, I went to see the miners in the mining country. I talked to everybody, and I realized, getting back to Paris, which was in full thing, we're going to make a revolution, I realized that there was never going to be a revolution just because the people who I talked to who were part of the unions just wanted to have more salaries, have more consumerism, have another television, Whereas the students who were reading Marcus, like myself, we wanted to get out of the society of consumerism. So there was no common link of interest there, and there was never going to be a revolution. So I went to the Nouvelle Observateur with my big inquiry, 
perhaps I must still have somewhere. I don't know where. <laughs> and the um, the the head uh, the head uh, bureau said to me, "We can't publish this because it's demotivating." I was so furious, Mark. <laughs> I thought this is the truth, and we can't publish it because it's demotivating. Well, yeah, your, you know. your your introduction to uh, lefty propaganda, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so then I thought, well. What I'm going to do is I'm going to try to make a documentary on 68 because there had just been a documentary that came out in France called Dying in Madrid of Frederic Rossif. I don't know if you ever saw that in black and white. And it was no, a huge success. And I thought, well, why don't, why don't I try to get one of my friends who happened to be an old friend and who happened to be one of the best um, movie makers of documentaries in French television, Henri de Turenne, he did all the battles, you know, the battles of 1940, the battles of the Atlantic, all those battles. Well, in France, he's very famous. So I thought, oh, I'll ask Henri if he's interested in doing that, and we can do it together. And so that's how I started in the films, and I did that for Pate, which was the big... Um, the big... Uh, sure, yeah. Still around, house, yeah, the Pate, you know? yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's still around, Pate. So I did it for them, and I was their executive producer. And uh, then they said, will you, start, will you continue to work with us? And then, well, either stupidly or rightly, I said, no. <laughs> this is such a huge success, I'm going to set up my own company. And then I felt my pain because it was very, I, I went through all the throngs and the difficulties of making a film, a, a fiction film with actors and the scripts and everything and all the delays that can happen, going over budget and the money problems and everything. But I mean, I, I learned my trade and I then went on to do another film uh, which was called Les Zozo, which was a huge success and which launched me as a film producer, which cost nothing because it was only with young people. And it's still something that goes around, which is an iconic film. Were, were most of your films or all of your films in, in French? What? Well, they're French, yes, they're all French. And I, then I made a partnership with Rizzoli in Italy. And I was lucky to be able to make that partnership because I knew they would finance always either two-thirds or half of my films by buying the right, doing a co-production with Italy and buying the rights for Latin America, for other countries that they were interested in selling. So, I mean, did you so think I you were going to do this forever? I made my 22 films. Yeah, 20, so of the 22 films, which one, uh, is there anyone you that stands out as being You wouldn't know any of them, Mark. I know, I know. I'm so, uh, first of all, I'm not, I know, I'm not like a cinephile, unfortunately. <laughs> And I do speak some French, but I, you know, I, I couldn't watch a movie in French and understand what's going on. So I, my points of reference here are are a little harder to come by. I'm much more comfortable talking about international development. Um, so, <laughs> so well, anyhow, anyhow, just to make a long story short, mm -hmm. um, I, I sold them in America, nearly all of them, but as tax shelters. Did you ever hear of that? That was a wonderful outlet for us. Okay. <laughs> People would buy them as tax shelters. <laughs> uh, they had to be shown for one day, that's all. I mean, did you think you were going to do this forever? No. That's exactly what I was saying. No, because time mm -hmm. was running. Uh, my priority, thank goodness, was my son. So I wanted to be very close to him. I wanted him to be my priority. I wanted to raise him with a lot of love and attention and care. So between my career and my son, I didn't have much time to do anything else, but I was always, always concerned by the fact that time was running and I was still not changing anything 
for anybody on the planet except being involved in all these, I would say, theoretical movements or helping people access ministries or help them get, get fundraising and everything like that. But I said, you know, once my last film was a huge film that I did in the desert in Africa, uh, actually not far from where Francois died, called Fort Sagan, that was with Gérard Depardieu and Sophie Marceau and Catherine Deneuve. And after that, I was thinking, well, that's my last film. I want to do one in America that I've been trying to do with computer-generating images that were starting, that were fledgling. And I had a whole project that I was starting off in Los Angeles, very proud to run around in Los Angeles with the best agent who'd given me a wonderful director. We're going to do this, a very ambitious film, because technically it was really, really totally more than innovative. It was crazy to do it because we'd had a lot of problems under the water, futuristic film. So I was in the middle of that thing. I don't want to go on doing films in France. I want to do this film in America. It would be so innovative. But when my son died, of course, there was no question of me continuing. And that's when I said, I've sold my film company. And I, and I decided then to go and work directly myself with Doctors of the World. And mm-hmm. because that was enabling me to, you know, to be with people who were in suffering and pain and had lost dear ones. I went to Lebanon where people had not just only lost one child, they'd lost several. They'd lost several. They had lost their rest of their family there was I felt mm-hmm. empathy with them and I felt that that was where I could start understanding how I could work and how I could do something to make the world a slightly better place I know this is package. this is difficult but but what what happened to your son my son was a helicopter rescue pilot and that's why FXB is called François Xavier his name is François Xavier Benu and that's why the organization is called FXB which was initials and my son, Francois, was a totally dedicated rescue pilot. I mean, he, that was his passion. That was his purpose in life, to go and rescue people. So when I started the organization, I felt that I was continuing for him his rescue mission, that he, he, well, all his dedication, all his generosity, all his courage couldn't just stop there in 1986. We had to go on somehow to, to perpetuate, to continue his mission, but on a different field and different scale so that's he, he you know he was flying in the desert of mali he was flying in uh, this race the paris dakar and they were taking a lot of risks because there were a lot of accidents and he was not only taking the leader of the race around to the tours but he was also they were also doing rescues because there was a medical helicopter but there were so many injuries that the medical helicopter couldn't deal with everything and Francois was thrilled because he could do his work of rescue and at the same time he was with the leader and he saw the whole race and it was very exciting for a young man who was 24 to do that and the helicopter crashed one night, and I think it was because they were on a last rescue mission. It's a long story, but we've come with my ex-husband, his father, and a lot of experts. We've come to that conclusion that what they were doing was a rescue mission because they had landed, and they weren't supposed to fly again. They had asked for a car to come and fetch them because the visibility was very bad. And uh, 10 minutes later, they all went off, including the singer, you know, Daniel Balavoine, you remember that singer? Who was somebody who was scared of flying and never wanted to fly. So he wouldn't have been changed in his mm-hmm. mind, the pilot having said, we stop, and the leader of the race having said, the pilot said, we have to stop, so we stop and give us, send us a car. Everybody left. 
and everybody left and probably what happened is what happens in there are a lot of rescue situations in Switzerland in Air Glacier, which is Francois' father's company, where in the panic people don't know the instruments and they put their hand or their foot or a bag falls on a little instrument called the PG, which is the one that makes the helicopter go down. Mm-hmm. So our conclusion is that that's what happened. And I guess how long after that accident did you decide to you know sell most of what you you well owned? I decided mark immediately I mean I mean I wasn't you know I, my father had died five years before my son so I wasn't already then I said to Francois we're not going to keep all this and change our lifestyles we better our lifestyles but we're not going to change them completely. So do you know what you want to do with all that money? I don't consider it's mine. It's mine. It's yours. He said, no, mommy. I said, well, look, let's wait till you're 30. I will run business. I will run everything and and I'll keep everything, all the collections and everything safe until you're 30 and then we'll divide it and each one of us will do what they want to do. So immediately, of course, after his death, it was natural for me to think, well, now I'm going to sell it all. I sold three quarters of what I owned at the time. And I thought, I'm going to sell it to have a tool, to have a tool that will enable me now to do programs that are going to do something good for, I don't know who, but the most destitute that I will be able to find. And that's when I went off with doctors of the world, Lebanon, the war situation, and then I was aware of Jonathan Mann. I was aware of the AIDS epidemic. You know, I read a lot. I read a lot of newspapers, and I read a lot per se. So I was aware of what was the most crucial problem in the world at that time, which to me seemed to be the ignorance of governments of the AIDS epidemic and this number, growing number of kids that were left to their own devices and to survive had to go into child soldiers, into criminality, into prostitution, and so, into terrorism. You know, so you, you, that's why I, I started. So, so you, you, I mean, you have this, this, this fortune. I, I guess you could have made two decisions, right? You could have given it uh, to an already existing organization. I, I guess the landscape these days is a far more robust in terms of international health and development than it was in, in the mid 1980s. So you could have found an organization to give it away, but you decided to start your own. Um, why, like, why was it? that you decided to be, you know, your own social entrepreneur. Because I'm a hands-on person. I'm a social worker at heart. I'm a, mm-hmm. And I always say I'm a politician at heart. You know, one of our politicians said something that really struck me lately, Jean-Louis Borloo. You probably don't know of him. He's a former minister, head of a party called UDI. And he's, he's left politics, and he's now trying to do something for Africa, getting electricity all over the African continent. And people said, oh, you've dropped politics, have you? He said, no, on the contrary, I'm doing politics, because politics is changing the social determinism of people. And that is what I wanted to do, and that's what I have been doing with FXB for the past 26 years, Mark. Uh, so, I mean, do you plan on doing this with FXB and, and leading FXB, you know, forever? Or do you, do you have any other uh, future ambitions or, or plans? I don't make plans. I'm not somebody who has blueprints and makes plans. Mm-hmm. I take things as they come and as they evolve and as the situation requires. I find that after 26 years, it's also time to hand over responsibilities, which I'm doing, to the younger generation. Mm-hmm. I'm putting the younger generation in the driving seat of FXB USA, of FXB France, of FXB Switzerland. I will always be there. I'll always be advising. I'll always be correcting. I'll always be putting things back on track. But I think they also have to make their own decisions. And then now that we're sharing the FXB Village methodology, which mm-hmm. was our program, and all its secrets and all its uh, trick 
ticks, uh, tips and, and, and tricks of how to do it so that it's successful because there has been, as you said, as I said to you, 86% success. So now that we're doing that, we'll continue to do that. But I think also there should be new blood innovating some new things. The situation also has changed completely now. There's so many other new things that could be invented and needed. And I say to them always, you look, I invented this 26 years ago. Now it's up to you also to invent new programs that will bring solutions to the problems today of the world, which are so immense. And good luck because they're huge, these problems. When you come so I'm really looking, I'm looking forward to seeing how the international development community embraces this model when it's, when it's made public. Like this week. But I hope they use it. It's because it really could help at least one part of all the problems that we're seeing today. And, and including Yeah. Including, you know, raising this discarded generation because that's what we're seeing. We're seeing young people who drift away either because of poverty or because they have no future, because our society doesn't offer them a future, because they're divorced from the society they're living in, and they just drift away into all these ills. And I think we could prevent a lot of that if we really anchored people in the places where they can make a living, where they can stay, where they come from, where they can raise their kids, and the kids would have a future. Uh, well, a uh, and I believe also deeply that when you invest in children, when you invest in young people, when you invest in women, you are investing in the security and the future peace of the world. Uh, well, so that's you know, my mission, you. Mark. That's what I believe deeply, and that's what I've been trying to do for 26 years. All right. Well, thank you all for listening. Thank you to Albina. And let me know what you think of this model when you have a chance to take a look at it, if you are so inclined. Send me an email via markleongoldberg.com or actually, better yet, via globaldispatchespodcast.com. There's a contact link there. Hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg and let me know your thoughts, your minds. Let me know if you have any suggestions of people I should interview or topics I should cover. And we will see you soon. Bye.